Last spring, our UUCF dismantling racism team uh, asked if I would consider teaching a course on dismantling racism. As I reflected on what curriculum might be most helpful, I chose a college textbook titled Privilege, a Reader. The part of the book that appealed most to me was that it it goes beyond uh, reflecting on the usual suspects of white privilege and male privilege. And now, white privilege and male privilege are the usual suspects for a reason, but uh, uh, it appealed to me that it went beyond just that to a more intersectional approach. Intersectionality, as some of you have heard me say before, uses the metaphor of a traffic intersection in which oncoming traffic is coming from many directions at once. From this viewpoint, any full full accounting of privilege and oppression in our society should at minimum include the ways that gender, class, race, sexual orientation, ability, and religion affect individuals and groups in our society differently for complex historical and cultural reasons. The intersectionality of gender, class, race, sexual orientation, ability, and religion, they profoundly affect how any given individual or group experiences the world, and therefore it it profoundly affects their resulting worldview. So I titled the class, What's Fair?, and who decides? Because that word privilege I've experienced, maybe you have, some of you have seen this as well, people don't always understand what it means when you talk about privilege. Part of what it means is unearned privilege. And a related insight I had, especially when that unearned privilege is experienced as earned, right? That that's the, you know, you think you, you're celebrating that you hit a triple when you, in reality you were born on third base, you know, as the saying goes. Uh, so and a related insight I had from reading this book is if you imagine a Venn diagram, often what is meant by that term privilege is at the intersection of the words entitlement, advantage, and privilege. So you almost need like the intersection of those three words to get at the heart of what's being talked about. For now, as we reflect on the interaction of privilege and oppression in the world, I invite you to consider one sociologist's definition of what would it actually look like, maybe, to have all of the privileges and none of the oppressions. He writes that, in an important sense, there is only one complete unblushing male in America, a young, married, white, urban, northern heterosexual, Protestant, father, college-educated, fully employed of good complexion, weight, and height, and a recent record in sports. Any male who fails to qualify in any, uh, who fails to qualify in any one of these ways is likely to view himself, during moments at least, as unworthy, incomplete, and inferior. And when I first read that description, the, the part that struck me the most was a recent record in sports. Because I can think of the strain that I have sat back and watched people go through to try and buttress their self-worth through attempting to constantly maintain a recent record in sports, even as their bodies inevitably changed with each ensuing decade. Not that there's anything wrong with seeking lifelong achievement in sports. Rather, the invitation is to see and accept that you have inherent worth and dignity as a human being, irrespective of athletics or anything else, to really own that inherent worth and dignity. 
Similarly, consider the lengths that some people go to to make sure no one questions their heterosexuality or the lengths people go to to stay thin. So many of these privileges of the so-called one complete unblushing male in America are precarious and can be lost at any moment from a turn in fortune or an unexpected accident and therefore are a tremendous source of anxiety for many. One of the insights I gained from teaching this course on privilege was to notice in a more precise way than I had previously that for most of us, it is much easier to notice the ways that we are oppressed than to notice the ways that we are privileged. Imagine you're swimming in the ocean. If you're swimming with the current, you can end up moving quite swiftly and rapidly down the shoreline with very little or any effort. Conversely, if you're swimming against a strong current, it can be an extreme struggle to advance at all. If you prefer a technological metaphor, think of it as the difference between playing a video game on the easy setting compared to the you know, advanced or expert setting. <laughs> For example, you can relate to that, I see, all right. For example, during my childhood in South Carolina, there are many ways in which I was oblivious to male privilege, to white privilege, to heterosexual privilege, to Christian privilege, all of which made my life easier than if I had been female, a person of color, gay, or non-Christian growing up in South Carolina in the late, uh, you know, in the late kind of last third of the 20th century. Because those were some of the ways that I was swimming with the current of the dominant culture. In in contrast, it was much more um, obvious to me the ways that some of my classmates had much more and much more expensive clothes, you know, holiday and birthday presents and family trips, making it much more easy for me to see their relative class privilege. Similarly, I was aware of the ways that jocks in high school accrued privileges based on their relatively greater athletic prowess um, that were ways that were unreachable to me. Genetically, I just wasn't cut out to compete on the football field. I did not even try. It's usually not until high school, I mean, until college or graduate school that you get the revenge of the nerds, as it were. Your privilege switches sometimes. Uh, Again, the point is that it's much easier to recognize the ways that we are oppressed than to notice the ways that we are privileged. I need time, I needed time and empathy to increasingly recognize the intersectional ways that gender, class, race, sexual orientation, ability, and religion impacted myself and others in vastly different ways. This same dynamic that makes privilege less noticeable to those who have it, um, it also makes racism, for example, less noticeable to white people who tend to have a lot less experience being pulled over for driving while black or driving while brown. It makes heterosexism less noticeable to those who have never had to worry about being harassed or harmed simply for expressing their feelings for someone of the same sex. It makes ableism less noticeable for those of us who have rarely or never had to worry about whether lack of accommodations might make visiting a friend or place of business impossible or extremely difficult. Looking back on my education, I realized in retrospect that when a class was taught from a historically oppressed um, perspective, it always had a qualifier in the title. So courses like African-American social ethics or Latina feminist theology. 
But there was no truth in advertising when I took these so-called generic courses on ethics. Or we're just going to have a course on theology uh, without a descriptor. That really would have been more accurately called, if you went back and looked at the syllabus and the books we read, white heterosexual male theology or white heterosexual male ethics. Because mostly we were studying the perspectives of white heterosexual men in those courses. And when white, wealthy, heterosexual males are the unqualified norm, then either consciously or unconsciously, everything else can be experienced as deviant from that norm, usually in a a negative sense. One of the first major aha moments I had in this regard was reading Howard Zinn's amazing book, A People's History of the United States. And he, he retells America's story from the point of view and in the words of America's women, factory workers, African Americans, American Indians, the working poor, and immigrant laborers. I recommend that book highly. It's also worth revisiting if you, it's been a while since you've read it. A second aha moment many years ago was reading one of the essays included in this privilege anthology that we read this fall. It's titled White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. It's by a woman named um, Peggy McIntosh. If you don't have time to read the whole book, that essay is a powerful starting point. And um, some of what you heard being done in the essays was riffing off of what McIntosh does in that essay. The most uh, moving and memorable part of her essay is this long list of examples of white privilege that are more difficult for white people to notice. They just take it for granted because that's what they're, they're swimming with the current of the dominant culture. And it's much easier for people of color to notice because it's what they stumble over. And so therefore you notice things that you stumble over. I'll share just a few of them for now. She writes that from the perspective of a white person, she's increasingly come to see as she's begun to unpack this invisible knapsack of privilege. She says, I see now that I can, if I wish, arrange to be in the company of people of my race most of the time pretty easily. I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured that I won't be followed or harassed for shopping while black or shopping while brown. I can turn on the television or open to the front page of the paper and see people of my race widely represented. When I'm told about our national heritage or about civilization, I'm shown that people of my color made us what we are. I can go into a music shop and count on finding the music of my race represented into the supermarket and find staple foods that fit my cultural traditions into a hairdresser shop and find someone who could cut my hair. I can criticize our government and talk about how much I fear its policies and behavior without being seen as a cultural outsider. I can be pretty sure that if I ask to talk to the person in charge, I will be facing a person of my race. I can easily buy posters, postcards, picture books, greeting cards, dolls, toys, children's magazines featuring people of my race. I can go home um, from most meetings of organizations I belong to feeling somewhat tied in rather than isolated, outnumbered, uh, unheard, held at a distance, and feared. And I can be sure that if I need legal or medical help, my work, my race will not work against me. That's ten among many more that she came to see as she started unpacking that uh, otherwise invisible knapsack of white privilege. One of the most important parts of the book we studied on privilege is that there are many other essays inspired by Macintosh's essay that help readers begin to notice ableism and Christian privilege and more. 
Now, when presented with lists such as these about privilege and oppression, one of the dynamics that often happens is that people tend to be more willing to grant that other people are disadvantaged. So we say, okay, I see that. That's a disadvantage for you. But they tend to be much less willing to grant that they are overprivileged. You know, they're not willing to grant there's anything wrong with what they have. And, that, and, and failure to see what is sometimes said, that loss of privilege, loss of that unearned advantage, that is not the same as reverse discrimination. But that can be really hard to appreciate at first. And a pitfall can be stumbling into what is sometimes called the oppression Olympics, in which different individuals and groups compete amongst themselves about who is more oppressed. A related challenge is coming to understand that these oppressions operate at a social and a structural and an institutional level that is far beyond any individual's prejudice. So on one hand, yes, it matters whether any individual is, given individual is sexist or racist or classist or ableist or heterosexist. On the other hand, irrespective of any individual's views, there are ways in which the laws and the culture and the history of our society are biased towards rich, white, heterosexual, able-bodied Christian men. And in the words of the UU activist Chris Crass, by the way, who will be uh, speaking in D.C. in March, so more about that coming soon, he says that these interlocking systems of oppression must be dismantled in order to build up a multiracial democracy with economic, gender, and racial justice for all. A world where the inherent worth and dignity of all people and the interconnection of life are at the heart of our cultures and our institutions and our policies. So just to be clear, probably obviously, there are many ways in which I've actually benefited from the current dominance of what could be called the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. But there are many ways in which that same um, dominant culture has harmed me and, are con- and continues to harm other men, who, who, even though they think they're just benefiting from it. I explored that da- dynamic at length in a sermon earlier this fall titled Toxic Masculinity. Uh, relatedly, if you remember my recent sermon about the racial justice activist Ann Braden, looking back on her long life, she said, you know, often people say to me nowadays, you gave up so much, you know, being born in Kentucky to uh, Christian privilege and being a you know, sorority girl and all of this, that you gave up so much for the, the for seeking racial and economic justice. And she says, you know, referring to the fact that I left a life of privilege and became an outcast. She says, I actually think I was lucky. Because I was able to escape the prisons that I had grown up in and join the human race. What more can you ask of life than that? Within our various spheres of influence, may we each do what we can to advance the movement toward collective liberation in which we all get free. At least for me, the more I have learned about intersectionality and collective liberation, the less uh, discussions about privilege and oppression have made me feel guilty and ashamed. That is how I felt at first. But increasingly, I've come to see that the point is not to make any, like, it's not like, let's all be miserable. That's not the point of this. The point is to make increasing numbers of us conscious. Conscious of unfair entitlements, advantages, and privileges in our society, and the need to level the playing field. 
Within our own tradition of Unitarian Universalism, one recent step um, taken to dismantle white privilege, level the playing field, and build up a more multiracial democracy is that uh, last month the UUA Board of Trustees committed $5 million to expand the role and visibility of black Unitarian Universalists. There'll be a meeting in early March of Black UU, the the Black Lives of UU um, Organizing Collective. That's going to be in New Orleans. If any of you are interested in that, who are people of color, uh, let me know and I can get you some more information. And they'll begin to talk about how are we going to best use these funds. There are important historic resonances to that amount of money in 1968. So coming out of, in 1965, UU showed up in Selma when Dr. King said, you know, come, help us with this Selma to Montgomery march. And then things got complicated in the years after that. In 1968, the UU General Assembly committed $1 million to support the UU Black Affairs Council to be paid over four years due to a confluence of circumstances, including financial mismanagement by white people in power at that time. Only half of the money was ever paid out, culminating in protests and walkouts at the next two general assemblies by people of color and their allies. This series of events in our history is known collective, is known alternatively as the black empowerment controversy or the white power controversy, depending on who you talk to. Uh, relatedly, one of the best books I've read about why we need to level the playing field is a book by the philosopher John Rawls called A Theory of Justice. One of his core ideas is a thought experiment in which he invites you to imagine yourself in a hypothetical pre-birth original position in which you are behind what he calls a veil of ignorance regarding the advantages and disadvantages with which you will be born. Behind this imagined veil, you will not know the gender or the race or the sexual orientation, the ability or the religion of yourself or your loved ones or what will be part of the dominant culture. So from behind this veil of ignorance, you must choose the principles of justice that will structure the society in which you will live. Rawls assumes that most people in such a position would choose to structure society in a way that even the most vulnerable among us would have their basic needs met. Rawls' theory of justice challenges us to fight for the same accommodation and dignity for others that we would want if ourselves or our loved ones were in that same situation. Now, obviously, if you read the news, read social media, we remain divided in many ways as a nation. But one way forward is to help one another better understand the intersection of gender, race, class, sexual orientation, and ability, and the ways that they cut through individuals and groups in complex ways, in multifaceted ways. I'm increasingly convinced that you know, race-first or class-first or gender-first um, approaches will not work. We need to move beyond competing oppressions to coalitions working together for collective liberation in which we all get free. And as we seek to build bridges across differences, one of my personal touchstones for navigating the ethics of privilege and oppression is to be attentive to the difference of what is sometimes called calling someone out versus calling someone in. As one becomes more conscious of privilege and oppression, a temptation can be to call people out. That's sexist. That's classist. That's racist. That's heterosexist. That's ableist. That's Christian supremacist. And it may well be. But that approach of calling people out um, can sometimes be shaming and distancing and is just increasing the divide between groups. I've been more heartened recently to witness people calling one another in. 
Calling someone into relationship involves, still involves naming hard truths about privilege and oppression, but it is done in the spirit of love. It's done in the spirit of saying, I care about you and our relationship, and because I care, I'm about to take the risk of being honest with you because I want to have a real relationship with you, not a fake relationship. So I want to name something that you did or said that hurt me, and it may or may not have been your intent, but it did hurt me, and I want to talk about it because I care about being in relationship with you. It's the difference between brutal honesty and speaking the truth in love, and that's all the difference in the world. All right, we're running a Sometimes things go quickly, uh, so I'll tell you a few more things. Uh, right? Try not to go. Uh, there, I saw a cartoon uh, in a in the Christian Century. It's a journal of Protestant Christianity that had something like it had like about a third of the congregation that looked passed out in the pews, and it said, you know, a third of the congregation died from starvation as the service went 15 minutes over. So you know, we try, we try not to do that to you, uh, but I do try to. We, we take at least 60 minutes usually. Um, the, so I, I try to remind us occasionally that centerpiece of our mission statement that's underneath our logo on the front of your order of service that we, you know, encourage spiritual growth and we build beloved community and we act for peace and justice. That, that phrase beloved community most famously comes from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He got that from a philosopher of, um, named Josiah Royce, who's also worth reading about sort of the personality theory and personalism. But, um, Part of what King talked about was that the triple threats, he didn't just talk about this positive dream of building a beloved community. He also talked about the triple threats that keep us from ever getting to beloved community and said those triple threats are racism, materialism, and militarism. And to me, those very interestingly map on to what I said earlier about the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, right? White supremacy is failure to dismantle racism. It's what you get when you don't dismantle racism in a culture that's traditionally privileged um, white lives. And that patriarchy is a lot about militarism. It is power over instead of power with, right? That's a lot of what patriarchy is about. Um, and then the third of um, materialism is, you know, maps onto the um, cap- onto capitalism. That it is about, it, and it's not that profit motive isn't important, right? Profit motive is important, but some of you have heard me talk about before the the triple bottom line of people, planet, and profit. Profit's still there, you know. You know, greed is a real self interest, is a real motivator, but also caring about people and planet and balancing those out against the profit motive and that our failure to do those things it just further emboldens the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy and fails to move us toward this new vision of a beloved community but it also gives us a a map of how do we do those things and and certainly this past election i think we one way of reading it there are many ways of reading it which i've talked some about before but one way of reading it is a a huge failure of intersectionality, right, is of, of certain parts of our, uh, you know, there are many reasons potentially to vote in a way that, whether it's your full intent or not, has the end result of emboldening the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy uh, at the expense of the beloved community, uh, not to be too overly dichotomous, but the, uh, 
but the part of the reason of that is a failure, is resentment that can build up when, when one feels like one's perspective isn't heard, uh, even if that's false. So a failure at intersectionality because it's a fail, it's a creation of competing oppressions as opposed to saying this is how we were actually all in this together, right? That, that wasn't heard, that wasn't understood, and it, and it unleashed um, resentment. So it's a challenge, but it gives us a little bit of a map of our way forward. Still time. Gonna tell you one more thing. Um, I, we could, we could. Uh, one more thing though. Cause I, I always have a lot more to tell you than I, you know, I, but I limit myself to a certain number of word count. Uh, so, uh, when, so when I think about one privilege that in some ways I feel like I have earned in my, um, life, as opposed to like white privilege and male privilege. I was just born into those, you know, in a way that mapped onto the dominant culture. But education privilege is something I actually earned, you know, that I was the first person in my immediate family to earn a college degree, much less go on to graduate school to earn a, a PhD. And none of that was expected of me, you know, it was, so that, that's a whole other story. But there is a piece, especially, so one of the things that hit me the most from this privilege class was thinking about the ways in which Education is often presented in our culture as a way to escape um, class oppression, right? So get educated so you don't have to do the dirty jobs and all of that. But then often people that are educated then forget to advocate for those jobs. I remember when I was in seminary and still, and I'm not trying to Christian bash. This comes from a place of love. I spent a lot of time in Christianity still, but that I... uh, naively thought that my professors in seminary actually wanted to be Christian in a way that was like how Jesus talked about, you know, and so I, which was clearly incorrect, I came to discover, uh, that the, uh, you know, I remember going to seminary and saying, so why don't we live in a more communal way? You know, so we're all here on campus. Why, why are we hiring out people to like clean the bathrooms? We use the bathrooms. Why do we not Take turns cleaning them. Everybody from the top to the bottom. You know, if we're serious about the first shall be last and the last shall be first, let's live that out. Just blank, you know, like, I don't, I don't think so. That, that doesn't sound like a good idea. Uh, but the, so to me, it's an invitation to, to take classism seriously. Uh, but the, and the final thing I'll share with you is one of the um, stories I've never forgotten was a member of, when I was in graduate school and seminary, a member at TCU who had just graduated from the religion department, uh, instead of going on to graduate school or instead of doing whatever one does after graduating college, she actually had really, uh, had her heart broken similar to, in a similar dynamic to what I've been talking about by the grounds crew at the college. So seeing that all of the uh, work that went into the, um, you know, planting flowers and just the constant work of the ground crew and realizing that they weren't even paid a living wage, that they weren't in a living wage, meaning uh, they were paid a minimum wage, but that was different from a living wage that would allow them to actually, you know, buy an apartment and not go into debt and all of that. And so what she did was she took that TCU college degree and joined the ground crew and organized them into a union and, you know, learned their stories and taught them to advocate for themselves and, and you know, and, and, and embarrassed, and in many ways embarrassed the, you know, the board of trustees because she could write a letter for the TCU SCIF on, and know that it should ideally come out on parents' weekend, you know, and think, you know, she knew things like that and could, and, and worked and advocated in solidarity with people. Now that, that's a moving story. Not all of us are willing to do that, but I, I offer that to you as just one example of a way you can use your privilege to advocate for the oppressed.
So as you go from this place, continue to discern what are the ways that you can continue your journey in love. Not speaking brutal honesty, but speaking and living the truth in love. To care for one another and to care for this one earth. To do justice and to make peace. And whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. So live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace.